You're listening to a podcast from Turner's Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, um, as some of you know, we were on holiday a few um, weeks ago, and uh, while we were on holiday, I bought in a charity shop a historical novel um, set in the Middle Ages. Um, someone I vaguely remembered reading about the author somewhere or having it recommended. And it was 25p, so it was too good to... Uh, it was about a thousand pages long, so I guessed it would get me through the whole day. It was good. I won't tell you which one it is, because I can't quite recommend it, but... Um, <laughs> for lots of reasons. Um, it, was, it was a good read, but it was set in the Middle Ages, and it was the kind of usual kind of popular fiction of in the Middle Ages, which is basically like um, Christianity and church. Boo, it sucks. Everyone was really superstitious and um, oppressed by the church, and which isn't a particular favourite um, storyline of mine, because um, I think it's not true. Um, but in the middle of this story, which was good in many other ways, there, one of the central characters was a priest who was so conniving, um, so ambitious, so wicked to the point of destroying people's lives and committing murder and so on, um, who was really, you know, he was a real bad guy. But the author kept mentioning throughout the story that this guy went to church seven times a day and prayed with all the, these monks in a monastery and was preaching and examining his conscience and so on. And I just found myself thinking about that portrait of this person. And it really made me struggle with the story because I was like, that's not realistic, is it? How could someone be so religious, uh, even like praying and, you know, praying with other people, praying on their own and spending time in church, and, but also be basically such a horrible, horrible person? And uh, it didn't ruin the story, but it put a damper on it. How could anyone be that hypocritical? It didn't seem like a realistic portrait to me. But as we read uh, the passage this morning about the teachers of the law that Jesus encountered on his ministry in Galilee, this is a, a juncture in Mark's gospel. He's ministering in Galilee. He's about to go and minister to the Gentiles. He encounters these guys who he basically says, you are like that character in that. In that story, you're so hypocritical as you can't you, to not even be able to see how how wicked you are. We see that this portrait isn't unrealistic at all because that's basically what they were doing. They seem to be holy. The, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, would have been put on a pedestal as the kind of the, the, the nicest people, the most holy people, the most upright and honourable people in that society. And they would have the respect of almost everyone else that Jesus was, would have spoken to. And Jesus says to them, you guys are hypocrites. That word hypocrite literally means an actor, someone who puts on a mask in order to play a part in a, on a, on, um, in a play, in theatre. And he's saying that's what you're like when it comes to morality. You look like you play the part, but actually you're just pretending. And we have this incredibly um, damning judgment upon them, but Jesus quotes from Isaiah, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That is a weighty statement, isn't it? Would you <laughs> like to have that spoken about you by the Lord Jesus? They worship me in vain. Imagine coming to meet God face to face and having him say, you worshipped me in vain. You just followed whatever you felt like while pretending to follow me. The scary thing, I suppose, about the passage is that this same hard-heartedness is something that actually 
God doesn't just want us to look at the Pharisees and go, they were bad guys, but actually he wants us to examine our own hearts quite seriously and say, um, well, <laughs> simply to say, I don't want you to be like that. But it is a real risk for us as those who follow Jesus that we could be that hard-hearted. And that, that, so this, it's always a present and relevant warning that we need to examine our own hearts. So Paul writes to the, um, in Corinthians, he says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We, we have to do that. Jesus says in Matthew 7, he says, um, there'll be some people who come to me on the day of judgment and they say, um, didn't we do all these things in your name? They'll come to me saying, Lord, Lord, and I'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So it's a, it's, a, it's a real warning that those who think they're following God may actually be hypocrites. It's a cheery beginning. There's a, there's a weight that we should examine. I think I'm learning also, whenever we think about the challenges God's um, word brings to us, we also see an invitation, don't we? Not just to examine our conscience, but to go deeper with God. To say, you know what, I don't just not want to be a hypocrite. I want to be, I want my heart to be as close to God as possible. I want my, what's in my heart and on my lips to be just the same thing. I want to be praising God, heart and mind, soul and strength. And what we see in this passage really is, I think, three clues. I know it's convenient for a sermon, but genuinely, I think there are three things here. Um, where God warns us and invites us. He warns us of hypocrisy and invites us into deeper, genuine closeness to his heart. So we're going to look at those three things. So the first thing, if you like, there are three symptoms of um, hypocrisy and three invitations. So the first symptom of hypocrisy, then, that God warns us about is judging superficially. So if you look at verses 1 and 2 and verse 5, um, actually see what's going on in this passage. Um, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law gathered around Jesus. I don't know where they were. I don't know whether they were in a marketplace or sitting down in someone's house, but whatever happened, you know, Mark doesn't tend to give us those details. But they gather around Jesus and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean. And that's what they focus on. They gather around Jesus and they're looking at his disciples and they say, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? What's, what's happening here? What's going on in the hearts of these Pharisees and teachers of the law? What are they doing? Well, think about this picture. The people that were with Jesus included former tax collectors, recently converted prostitutes, those who were poor and uneducated, those from parts of the country and society wouldn't have known anything about the, the social customs of Judea and the rarefied atmosphere of um, the religious elite, as well as honourable, you know, more well-respected, generally, members of society. that Jesus had rich and wealthy and influential people as his disciples as well. So verse 2 says, some of them didn't wash their hands. Um, now, just to be clear, this isn't about hygiene, guys. The takeaway from today is not don't wash your hands before you eat <laughs> in order to be a Christian. It's good to wash your hands, but that's not what they did it for. They didn't know about bacteria, that sort of thing. It was a ceremonial cleansing, and it was just something they did to show that they were um, religious people, that they honoured God when they ate food, they honoured God when they um, came into a house, and that sort of thing. Um, so what's going on here? They're gathering around Jesus, and they're not really interested in what is going on in Jesus' ministry at all. 
They're judging very, very superficially. They should have known from the Bible, from everything that God had said to his people in the past, that when the Messiah would come, he would come to preach good news to the poor, right? He would come like a, like a dawn breaking. He would come to shine on those who live in darkness. He would call those who are in darkness back into the light. He would come to set captives free. So the Messiah would probably be surrounded by recently released captives, the poor, those who live in slavery of one type or another, those who were somehow left out and excluded by whatever system had come before. He was the one who would shine on those who dwell in darkness, who would guide their feet into the way of peace, as John the Baptist's father said. So Jesus is in the middle of this crowd. He's leading these people out of captivity. And, they're, they're, you know, it's amazing. These people who had had nothing to do with religion uh, until maybe weeks, days just before this event happened, are now following Jesus and they're wanting to get close to God in a way that the Pharisees just would never have dreamed could have happened in their ministry. They didn't have people like this knocking on their door and saying, how can I be a better Jew? They can't see what's happening. They're judging superficially. They're not judging what's really going on, which is the Messiah is in their midst. They're judging superficially. Some of your disciples aren't sticking to our traditions. They're, they, what, what is the, what is it? <laughs> what's their thought process? They feel threatened by Jesus. I, th- I think basically they're just not interested. They're not really interested in what's going on at all. They want to draw lines quickly and neatly so that they know what to do with Jesus. Is he on our side, or is he against us? If he's against us, we'll get rid of him. We know that. I'm not judging their hearts unfairly. We know that, because that's what happened. As soon as they were certain that Jesus wasn't going to maintain the current system, they plotted amongst themselves to have him killed, the Bible tells us very clearly. They want to get to the heart of the matter. This is judging superficially. I was watching a documentary the other day. It was this English guy in Argentina, this might interest you, Nick. And um, an English guy in Argentina, and he was uh, in quite a difficult situation where uh, quite a, a controversial argument. And he was trying to explain his position to this uh, Argentinian guy. And they, there was just this breakdown of communication. And the Argentinian guy just walked off and said to a friend, it's no use. He's English. They stole the Falklands. And that was the end of the argument. <laughs> The guy was a priest who was saying that, the Argentinian. <laughs> so it's quite surprising. But what was going on in that situation, there wasn't really an interest in resolving this conflict. So he just wanted to get away from the situation. He wanted to write him off. So to say that we don't have to have anything more to do with it. And that's really what they're doing here. They're not judging properly. They're not judging sincerely, but they're judging superficially. They're looking just at the first thing that occurs to them. Oh, your disciples don't wash their hands. So, so they're not real disciples and you can't be a real rabbi. Compare that with another example of wisdom from one of these guys. So they weren't all bad. We had people who were sincere, like Nicodemus. And in Acts chapter 5, we learn of another Jewish leader who was sincere, a guy called Gamaliel, who, when the apostles were first uh, were brought before the Sanhedrin for, uh, for trial, and they were trying to figure out what to do with them, Gamaliel says to all the people, that, uh, he kind of does the opposite to that. He doesn't judge superficially. He says this, in this present case, I advise you, says the Sanhedrin, Leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you'll not be able to stop these men 
they'll only find themselves fighting against God. See what he's doing there? He's not just trying to dismiss the case. He's not just trying to defeat some foe that he's decided in advance that he's against. He's genuinely interested in finding out the truth. So God calls us, if we want to be close to his heart, one of the symptoms we should look for of hypocrisy is, am I judging people, situations, things superficially? Simply to, to do what I want to do, to meet my own agenda, or am I genuinely interested in the truth? God calls us to not be hypocrites in that way. But there's an invitation there to go deeper, to exercise judgment. So he wants us to think about who we associate with and why. Not like the Pharisees, so we don't have to hang out with <laughs> people we don't like. But quite the opposite. He, he chooses us to judge difficult moral situations. He cho- he, he, sorry, he commands us to judge difficult moral situations. He commands us to be wise. Also, the invitation is to live a Christ-like life that's um, focused on revealing God's love. So then we see both this warning and invitation. Judging people or things superficially is a surefire sign that our hearts are being, our, our hearts are far from God. You see the see what's going on there? We can judge who we'll have fellowship with, say in a church, or even between churches. We can judge who we'll have fellowship with by superficial means. We can judge a, a, another Christian by their churchmanship. Are they Yes, that's the one I was thinking of. Episcopalian. <laughs> or more controversial. Or they're a Catholic. You know, so we will judge their sincerity on the basis of what church they go to without actually knowing the person. Or maybe by their, their creed. You know, they're Reformed or they're Pentecostal or whatever. Just to pick two. And, and we, we, we can write someone off just on the basis of, of their churchmanship. We can judge people by their, uh, the way they interpret uh, the rules of the Christian life. We can judge people by the way they behave, by their accent or by their clothing or by their social habits or you know whether they take their shoes off when they come into your house or not. Or some other silly thing. <laughs> and when we do that, this, here's the... We are... First of all, we're denying the image of God in the person. But also, we're missing out an opportunity to see the richness of, of what the church is and God's grace at work in the church. Paul writes all about this in Romans 14. It's, Romans 14 is almost like a meditation on this message, an application of it. When he talks about judging another man's servant, he's, he's writing to a church in Rome that would have been divided quite severely on racial lines. There'd have been Jews and Gentiles. There'd have been conservative Jews, there'd have been Jews from diaspora, and Jews maybe who'd recently come from, from Jerusalem, there'd have been Gentiles, all different backgrounds, and all in this melting pot of early Christianity with hardly any rules to figure out what to do. And he says to them, don't judge one another superficially on what you eat or like whether you hold one day holy or another. Because by doing that, you're judging another man's servant. But see, his vi- the vision that God gives us is of a church filled with People of all different types. Uh, you go to Revelation, you get a picture of a church uh, filled with people of every race and nation, tribe and tongue. You know, that's just the big picture. That's every personality type, whatever system you want to use to judge personality types, every background, socially, 
economically. The church full of all these different things, and God calls us not to judge superficially, but to look at what's going on in the heart. So he doesn't want us to cut ourselves off from the rich fellowship we have in church and between Christians. We can judge who to share the gospel with superficially, can't we? We can look at someone who's not a Christian and think, yeah, I think they're probably quite likely to, uh, to respond to the gospel. Have you, ever, have you ever said or heard, they're basically a Christian, just but they just don't go to church yet or believe in God? <laughs> you ever said that? <laughs> ever heard that? Yeah, okay. Um, I remember watching a, te- a tennis match um, back in 2000. It was Goran Ivanisevic, I think he was in the final, the semi-final of Wimbledon. Someone who's good at sports remember that. Pete, you might remember. Um, and uh, he was playing some Australian guy, his name I can't remember either. Sorry, not, not the best story. And uh, <laughs> Anyway, I was watching this um, uh, at work. It must have been a final because it was during our lunch break. We were, we were watching it at work and there was a, an Australian girl there. She's rooting for the Australian guy. Not on the basis that he was Australian, but on the basis that like um, Goran Ivanisevic was um, uh, like into horoscopes. <laughs> and the other guy, the Australian guy, was basically just a normal kind of secular, middle class, but basically average white male you know, middle of the road, you know, just never said anything controversial. But he wasn't a Christian. And so she was rooting for this guy because basically he was a decent bloke. And Goran Ivanisevic believed in horoscopes. <laughs> and so he deserved to lose this. You know, there's a kind of something that goes on with that, doesn't there? When we go to share the gospel with someone, there's something in our imagination sometimes we think, oh, this person, they, I th- you know, I think they really, they really do well as a Christian. Because basically they look a bit like this group of people right here, right? <laughs> And so we, we, uh, we exclude people from the gospel because we judge superficially. We think that person won't be interested. They're not religious or they've got nothing going on in their life that, that, that you know, we, we, for the gospel to get a, a hook in and for God's grace to break in. They don't need it or they're, they're too well off or whatever. We can judge superficially and so be far from God's heart for the lost. The heart of the shepherd who will go after the one lost sheep the heart of the one who gave his only son, that whoever believes. We can judge ethical situations superficially as well to make life easier for ourselves. You know, we, sometimes in our life we face really difficult things, especially in relationships when uh, people hurt us um, or they hurt someone close to us and we just want to write that person off, don't we? Have nothing more to do with and yet, their motives of behaving the way they are, while they uh, behaving the way they have, while they may have been wrong, you know, it's an opportunity for God's grace there, isn't there? To show God's love, to minister God's um, truth and justice into that life, to, to keep on having something to do with that. You know, maybe there's someone in your life that you've written off because they've hurt you, a family member, and. God would say, don't judge that superficially. You're tempted to make this black and white and to say, there's no hope for that person. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop being kind to them in your imagination. Don't stop thinking the best of them in as much as you can. God is still wanting to show grace to that person. Don't judge the situation superficially. And of course, God calls us to judge with wisdom uh, all sorts of ethical situations.
things, but on a personal level. I think that's very applicable for us. We can judge ourselves superficially as well, of course. We can think, because I'm doing certain religious things, I'm okay, I've got a quiet time, I'm uh, going to church, I'm attending every men's breakfast, even if it's not Sam Ward, I'm tithing, I'm, you know, a house that's burning down can still have a door, a roof, and four walls. It's still burning down. We can judge ourselves superficially, but also we can be condemned superficially as well. You know, I'm saying it's, it's a chance to examine our hearts so we're not hypocritical, but also God would say, don't be condemned by the enemy's superficial lies about you either. The way he accuses you of doing wrong over the smallest thing. Where he judges your motives even when you, they're not bad. And you feel that accus- accusing voice. God doesn't want us to judge ourselves superficially. So God calls us, this invitation then of course is to deep insight. If we want to have fellowship with God, we want to look at the situation around us, people and things and uh, Christians and non-Christians. And if our heart is near to God, we're always looking for not what's convenient for me, what, not what serves my agenda, but what is the truth of things. When it comes to people, a situation, we, we hold our tongue, we bide our time, we wait to see what's really real. The Bible has so much to say about that before passing a judgment. Like Gamaliel, we should be looking at people and things and situations and say, what is God doing here? What's really going on? What's this person really like? How can I show God's love in this situation? What is the wise and loving response that gives glory to God? So what's going on in my, in my heart in that situation? So, the first symptom then, we judge superficially. First invitation is to judge wisely, truly. Secondly then, obeying superficially. That's the second symptom that we should look for. When um, I first went to India, I flew with... Um, over there with Matt, and we arrived at three o'clock in the morning. We were driving through the streets of Trivandrum in Kerala, and one of the strangest things we saw was we saw lots of elderly people sleeping rough on the street. It's such a bizarre thing. Like, you think about that, you've probably never seen that, right? Elderly people sleeping rough on the street. And we asked Robinson what was going on, and he said, Well, this is this horrible thing that happens in our culture where um, it's a dowry system, and what will happen is if um, a family doesn't have cash to give, to the bridegroom when their daughter gets married, they'll give their home instead. And basically the deal goes to something like this. The, the bridegroom, the husband in a, in a marriage, will, in, will inherit the house of the father and mother. And the deal is that they get to live there until they die. But legally speaking, by rights, he now has complete control of that property. And so what often happens is once the property is transferred into his name, he then decides he'll try it out for a month or so, and then it's a load of hassle because he's living with his in-laws, and he'll kick his parrots out and there's nothing the, the wife can do about it. And so these hundreds, thousands of people, elderly couples in India who are sleeping on the streets because they've been booted out by their son-in-laws. Terrible, isn't it? Well, something like that is what Jesus is condemning the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for in this passage. The Jews of Jesus' time, certainly the teachers of the law, believed that when the law was given on Mount Sinai to Moses, there were actually two laws given. There was the written law, which Moses personally put on the, on the tablets and then wrote down in, in the books of the Pentateuch uh, for 
all the Jews to read, but they also believed there was an oral tradition as well, a, a set of interpretations of how to interpret that law. And they believed that that tradition was passed down uh, from generation to generation orally. So you had this set law written down, and you had the oral law which showed you how to interpret the commands of God as written down by Moses. And so by this time it gets to Jesus' time, there's this huge tradition that goes along with how to interpret God's law. And uh, one of those traditions is this tradition of Corban. Sorry I've left you waiting so long for the explanation of what Corban is from the reading. But Corban basically meant you could dedicate any part of your property to the temple or to religious purposes. And then it wasn't touchable by any other legal means. So it's a bit like if you put money in a pension, the government can't tax you on it. It's a bit like that. Um, you put money into Corban, and then when you die, um, that money or that property is given to the temple and is used to support religious things. But what was happening was that you could also get out of that promise. So you could temporarily say that something was Corban to get out of paying a tax or some other due that you owe. Well, one of the things that the Jews believed quite strongly, and according to the law of Moses, was you should look after your parents when they're elderly. They should live with you and you should go after them. Well, if you didn't have the means to do that, of course, you were excluded from that. You know, you have to look after your immediate family and then your extended family and so on. So if you didn't have the means to do that, you were excluded from that command. And what was happening, people were abusing the system. by Basically, they were taking, uh, instead of listening to the, the law of Moses that commanded looking after parents, they were using this oral tradition that said you could dedicate something to the temple. And they were temporarily dedicating their goods to the temple to say, I can't, I can't afford to look after my parents. And then once the situation was resolved, the parents died of ill health or whatever, they could then pay a small fee to the temple and say, yeah, I've changed my mind. That's pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> so no wonder Jesus was, was angry about it. You know, this, this command, this way of manipulating... Oh, um, the other reason why he's angry is, of course, the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the scribes, all the... Priests of the temple, they were in on it, of course, because they got money one way or the other. If it was really Corban, then they got the inheritance. And if it wasn't, they got the fee that cancelled the Corban. And so they made a buck doing it. They made a, a living out of this manipulation of God's law. You know, this, it's the spirit of God's law was to be, for, for Israel, was to be this, ho- this holy nation. A holy nation whose every part of their life, like every single bit of their life was to shine with the holiness of God, to show how amazing and compassionate and loving and perfect was the God of Israel, to show how alive he was. And, so, you know, just one small aspect of that is the, is the fifth commandment, on your, on your father and mother. And, and the idea was that as Gentiles who didn't know God's law would come in and, and see how Israel lived, they'd look at how they lived and they'd go, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I've seen people who look after their parents when they're easy, but, you know, they would come in and see how Israel lived, and they say, "This is how a society should should be running." Your God is really here, and your laws are really true. That's that's the purpose of the law. That's the spirit of the law that they should have known. And instead of that, they were cheating their own parents out of the support that they owed them, according to to God's law. This hypocrisy, this. It was a superficial obedience. They were saying, we're obeying the law. But they weren't really. They were disobeying the spirit of the law. This hypocrisy is what God is warning us against. The kind of what looks like obedience, but is actually disobedience. 
I think that's a fairly straightforward point. I've made it complicated, but it's a fairly straightforward point. Isn't it? To look like you're obeying God, but to actually be disobeying him is a really, really big deal. And there's a sign that something isn't right. You know, the same was true with these cleanliness laws. The, the Pharisees were using, and the teachers of the law were using this washing of the hands. They wash their hands before every meal, every time they went to a marketplace, every time they touched something that a Gentile or a woman might have touched, they would have cleansed, they would have washed their hands. Those laws, even though in the oral tradition, those laws were meant to be not some kind of pernickety, ridiculous religious identity to show how holy you were. They were meant to be an invitation to forgiveness, to come and draw close to a holy God, to come into the temple and to be reconciled. And they, they were using them to show we're in the know and you're not. They were using it to be exclusive of those who God heart, um, who God would include. So the second symptom of our heart being far from God is that we twist obedience to suit our own ends. So that we say we're obeying, but we're not. And it is just, it's especially dangerous, of course, this, this thing that the Pharisees were doing, because it's really hard to call someone to repentance and to say, hey, you're doing something wrong when they really, really have convinced themselves that they're obeying God. So, you know, there are straightforward ways we can do this. We can, uh, I don't know, tithe at church and be miserly in our everyday behaviour and say that we're being generous. We can um, raise our hands in worship and be committing idolatry in every other part of our lives, right? There's, um, you know, we, we, can, we can pray, but in a way that never really addresses God, just addresses the people around us. We can, we can give that hearty amen and have been, I don't know, Scrolling through Twitter while the person was praying or something, you know. This is really superficial things. You know, there are more radical dangers, I think. They're more relevant, specific dangers to our, our cultural situation that I think it's good for us to be aware of. We don't have an oral tradition that interprets God's law and twists it. You know, we're not part of that Jewish thing, but we, we have cultural trends and influences around us that we're trying to distort the way that we, we obey God's law. So one of those that it's something called radical individualism, which is basically just this idea that choice and freedom is the most important thing. And that can twist God's law. This is uh, from a resolution from a meeting in 1994 of the Episcopalian Church in America on abortion. The Episcopal Church expresses its unequivocal opposition to any legislative, executive or judicial action on the part of local, state or national governments that abridges the right of a woman to reach an informed decision about the termination of pregnancy or that would limit the access of a woman to safe means of acting on her decision. So this church in America, to cut through the legal jargon, had basically said in the previous paragraph, we uphold um, the fact that an embryo in a woman's womb is made in the image of God. It's the most valuable thing we could possibly imagine. It's, it, it, you know, the previous paragraph is quite beautiful and thoroughly orthodox. But on the other hand, we also uphold the right of a woman to terminate her pregnancy on the basis of choice. That's a controversial issue. If you want to kind of chat to me about it, I'll happily explain in further detail why Christians have, have believed a certain approach to that in the past. But you see what's happening there is this, they're saying they're obeying God and they, they, they probably really believe that they're obeying God's law about the, but they're being influenced by this thing from the outside that says, 
but you're right to choose. How could anybody tell you what to do with your own body? How could anyone trump that? And even if it's God's law, how could that be more important than your right to choose? And it's being twisted. And that's a very dangerous place to be because once you start to be influenced by things outside of God's law, once you start to pay attention to things that aren't part of what God has said, you can pretty much end up wherever you like. I mean, that's a big issue. What if we take a personal issue? Um, more close to home. I think this radical individualism raises its head in churches, in individual lives for Christians by a kind of idolatry, an idolization of grace, actually, that says you can do whatever you like. You know, the most important thing is that your intentions are good. You know what, that's passive, but you can easily preach that from this passage, couldn't you? Your lips say one thing, but your hearts are far from me. Don't worry about what your lips say, just as long as your heart is close to God, that's the most important thing. So Christians uh, in this country, in our culture, they'll, just, they'll justify things on the basis their heart is in the right place. You know, people will sleep together before they're married on the basis that it's okay because we're going to get married one day, or we're as good as married, so it's okay. I don't need a piece of paper to prove that I love somebody. Or the person, uh, Christians who justify their divorce on the basis, you know, just I couldn't stand to, for the kids to see us arguing anymore. You heard that? I tragically heard that in real life circumstances. Or the guy who justifies uh, watching pornography because who's getting hurt? Or. <laughs> It's a thousand, a thousand things we can think of where Christians are doing stuff that no, throughout the centuries no Christian would have ever countenanced. But no Christian, uh, hundreds of years, would ever have agreed with those things and said, yeah, that's okay, because you know, who would want to trample on your free choice or your freedom of conscience? We go along with these things because we secretly want to obey our own desires or we don't want to be a social outcast who's saying things that are unpopular go against the opinions of our friends. We can, we can multiply the examples, of course. And I'm superficially obedient in a hundred thousand different ways. <laughs> That's why we need God's grace. But what's the invitation in, in, in the midst of this? See, the, the real issue for us as Christians is not just how can we avoid those things, but are you responding? This is a challenge to God, of God to you this morning. Are you responding to that deep and profound invitation to really, truly obey God, to really, truly align your heart and mind and will with the heart of the God who created you in the universe. That's the real issue here. Not are you breaking all these rules because you are already, sorry. <laughs> but which direction are you facing? Are you, are you wanting to, uh, to, to understand God's heart and to live in the love, in the knowledge of that love, in a responding in that love, in the way that he enables you to as a Christian? Do you want... Essentially, the, the, the question is, do you want to be a child of God who knows the love of God and lives it to the full and overflows it in life-giving ways to all the people around you? Do you want to be Christ-like in who you are? That's what, that's the, that's what God is asking us. Or do you just want to do what you want to do? This true obedience that God is calling us to, this wonderful invitation we have as Christians is not just that we know right from wrong, not just that we can stop doing wrong things, but that we can truly live 
to reveal the love of God. The very least we will do, if that's true of us, is obey the straightforward meaning of Scripture, right? That's when we did Ten Commandments. We talked about fencing. And we talked about these are the things that every Christian should do or shouldn't do. But more than that, there's this invitation in this passage. Do you want to be like David when he writes the Psalms and he says, God, your law is so perfect. From it flows life and goodness. It makes sense of everything around me. And if I follow it, I find joy and peace. And whatever I turn my hand to flourishes under your will. And the people around me are blessed and it brings happiness. Your law is perfect. I meditate on it day and night. I want to understand its depths. I want it to be part of who I am. I want to know your mind and obey you. So God is inviting us this morning. He's saying, what's your basic attitude? Maybe there's specific things you need to deal with. But are you looking at like God in the center and then trying to think, how far can I get away from God before anyone really notices that I'm not being much of a good Christian anymore? Or are you facing the other way? How close can I get to Christ? Where is God challenging you? Some big thing going on in your life right now? Some big temptation? Some big calling? Maybe there's something more subtle going on. God invites us to examine our hearts this morning. So, one last point. And I think that really helps us to understand what's going on in this passage. And uh, it sort of brings out a third, third way, third way of telling whether our hearts are close to God, a third symptom of hypocrisy, if you like. A couple of years while we were on holiday in the same place we went this year, um, down in Tavistock, we were looking for a church to visit. And uh, we um, went to uh, the URC church, and on the wall outside there was a plaque describing the founder of the church. I think it was a Reverend William something or other, Rooker. And um, he was a Puritan guy, had the date and everything. I looked at that and thought, gosh, this will be a great church. <laughs> this blue book. And then next to it was a sign that said, this church is a member of the Council of Progressive Christians. And I thought, oh, this is a name of such a good church. There's this conflict. Now, I, sorry for those of you who get the joke and those of you who don't. So just to explain this, um, this, this group of uh, progressive Christians, they... Um, uh, they have this statement of faith that basically just negates all the major premises of what it means to be a Christian. But the, the second one is this. We recognize, uh, the second part of their statement of faith says this, we recognize the faithfulness of other people who have other names for the gateway to God's realm and acknowledge that their ways are true for them as our ways are true for us. That's just an example of their creed, which is a little bit different to I'm the way of the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, isn't it? But, so they were saying this thing. They were saying... We're in continuity with the past. Look at our heritage. Reverend William Rooker, this amazing Puritan guy, planted all these churches all over the place, sound congregationist for those who reformed and you know, wrote books and everything. They're, they're drawing this path to show we're a great solid church, and yet in the present they would have done some of it. I mean, he wouldn't have just turned in his grave, he'd have probably climbed out of it and burned the church down if he knew what was going on. I'm mean, not really exaggerating. He, you know, he would have been so appalled at what was happening in this church. There's this superficial 
I didn't know quite what to call this third point. I wanted to superficial humility, superficial unity, superficial continuity. Let's just settle for superficial humility. The choice of command that Jesus picks on to highlight the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is not a coincidence in this passage. He chooses the fifth commandment, honour your father and mother. We've already talked about it. But the reason he chooses that is because it was the fifth commandment that the Jewish leaders were accusing the disciples of flattering. Verses 3 and verse 5. They don't stick to the tradition of the elders. So to honour your father and mother wasn't just about being nice to your mum and dad or not being cheeky or whatever. It was about a general submissiveness to, um, to those who'd gone before you. And that was the, the fullest interpretation. So it was, it was about submissiveness to the Jewish tradition and all those things. It was much bigger than just being polite to your parents. And so then they're saying they're flouting these rules. They don't obey them. What they're really saying is they're not obeying the fifth commandment. You see the connection? I hope you can see it. It's there. Now, this passage isn't anti-tradition as um, some great preachers have preached this passage and said, you know, what this is saying is we don't need tradition. I was reading um, one amazing uh, Victorian um, guy, Anglican and he, he pre- in his notes to this passage he's saying so you see what he's saying is we don't need he was really going for the Catholics he's saying you know all this nonsense about chalcibles and robes and incense and all that sort of thing these are traditions that have been added to the word of God and Jesus is saying, we just we don't need that tradition. We can just go straight to his word. Coming from an Anglican who believes, you know, he's an evangelical, so he wasn't like, you know, high church or anything, but still believes in the um, uh, bishops and infant baptism and uh, Westminster Confession, all these things. Whether you think they're good or bad is up to you, but I'm not going to say anything about it. But you see, he himself, in his own interpretation of what it means to be a Christian, was resting on tradition. Right? So... This passage isn't anti-tradition, some would say. Obeying God, interpreting his commands, even the really straightforward ones, takes wisdom, doesn't it? And it's good to, um, if we really want to obey God, then we should look at how those who love God and have gone before us in the church, how they have loved God. You take a command, simple command, love your enemies. That's not easy to figure out what that means, is it? Or take a command, turn the other cheek. So if someone is beating you up, should you turn the other cheek? If someone's you know, attacking your wife, should you turn it? Right? Just take one really simple example. These aren't actually that easy to figure out how to apply them in everyday life, let alone when it gets to the issues of church governance or who to baptise. Obedience takes wisdom. If we really want to obey God, then we have to look back at those, what people have done before us. That's sensible. It's a respect for those who've gone before and the wisdom they've exercised. But that's not what these Pharisees were doing, was it? When their forebears came up with these rules about washing hands or whatever, for whatever situation they were in, did they really think, did the Pharisees really think that what was going on was they were thinking, we've got a good little number here, a good way of earning an extra penny for the temple. (laughs) Let's invent a way that people can not look after their mum and dad and give money to priests instead. You know, it, it's, it's a very, very superficial way of saying that you're in unity with what's gone before. It's a very, it looks like they say, we're submitting to the tradition of the elders. You guys aren't. And, I, and while doing that, they're 
they're doing that in a very superficial way. You see, it's like um, it's, it's so childish. It's like Nathan stopped blowing raspberries in Charlotte's face, and he says to me, "Well, she did it first. You know, it's it's very, very childish." I was going to say, I don't think traditionalism is a problem for us in this church. But actually, as I thought about it, I think actually maybe it is. Using that continuity of the past to justify the way we behave now in ways that contradict um, God's law. You know, our tradition is what we would call pietistic. This isn't, you don't have to remember that particularly, but it just to hold this point in mind, pietistic. And that means churches like ours were born out of a desire to kind of obey the heart of this verse. To say, we don't want empty religion. We don't want the form of religion without power. We want the real deal. We want the gospel that changes lives. We want the gospel that sees people saved. We want um, worship that moves the affections. We want, we want a prayer that comes from the heart. We don't want superficiality and religious forms. We want the real deal. That's where our church came from. Methodist revival. And more recently, those things have found a renewed expression in, in the evangelical, particularly Pentecostal and charismatic movements. This desire for the real thing and not empty forms of religion. But actually, that can turn itself into a rejection of the goodness of tradition. We can take pride in not having any continuity at all. And I'm weaving together a couple of different points here, but I think this is particularly relevant for us. And this is more of a general thing than a personal thing, more for us as a church. But you know, I think the Bible makes it really clear that the rejection of humility to the past is a sin in itself. Whether it's in terms of what we believe or in terms of how we do things, Actually, as a church, God says that we should look to the past and see how have our brothers and sisters in Christ who love God and have spent nearly 2,000 years figuring out how to worship him, how to follow him, how have they done things? Yes, we want the real deal. We want the genuine substance, but we should also be submissive and have a genuine, deep humility to the past. So imagine... Imagine a racing driver, a Formula 1 racing driver, turns up on the first day of racing driver school and they start talking about, so this is how Alan Prost drove and this is how, I think of another racing driver. I think, yeah, loads, Senna, Nauda, <laughs> these guys drive and he's just, oh, I don't, I don't care about that stuff, I don't care about racing lions or practice laps or anything, I'm just going to jump in the car and I'm going to go. <laughs> and I'll figure it out on the way because it can't be that hard, can it? He's going to end up 200 miles an hour in the first barrier and drives to us, isn't he? And we're in danger of doing that as Christians when we don't look at how Christians have done things in the past. So actually, this I can demonstrate what I'm saying from Scripture, of course. So Paul says to the Corinthians, who seem to have a particular problem in this regard and really wanting to do things their own way, he says in 1 Corinthians 14, he says to them, he's given them all these commands about how to do worship, and then he says, or do you think the word of God originated with you? <laughs> he gives them this rebuke. Or well, are you the only people that God's spoken to? He says, 1 Corinthians 14. Or 1 Corinthians 11, he says, 
he gives all these commands about how to behave and worship again, and he says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And you see that stretching out into the early church as well, as heresy surrounded the church and so on. The, one of the greatest defenses that the theologians, the, the church fathers, came to again and again was, this is how it's done in all the churches. And those people are bringing, they're bringing new beliefs that no one's believed before, and they're bringing new practices that no one's practiced before. And that's how you know that they're heretics. <laughs> so our desire to be real can tip over into a desire to be novel, can tip over into a desire to be accommodating, can all sorts of different things. So around us it's happening, church after church, denomination after denomination. There's this desire to say we are part of the one true church and we're in continuity with everything that's gone before. It's just that we want to do it in a completely different way to what's gone before. That lack of humility before the church as a whole is a sin. Because it, it's elevating pride. It's like that racing driver or not racing driver. Saying, I, you know, I, I don't need any help. I don't need your opinions. I can figure this out for myself. It's, it's a sin because it denies God's promise to guide the church into all truth through the Holy Spirit. It's a sin because it rejects God's command to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because it's saying, I don't need them. I don't need to listen to them. I don't need to look at their lives or their practice. I don't need to love them. Actually, so there's this warning then. When we have a superficial humility towards other Christians, historically all around us, and we say, you know, you know I want to be part of your thing. I just want to do things my own way. then there's a symptom there that our hearts are far from God. What God calls us to then, the invitation, is a deep humility, a deep unity uh, with the church throughout history. So we confess in the Nicene Creed, we say, I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And that's what it means. It means this submission to Christians everywhere and that genuine continuity. So then, what does this mean in application? It's a, it's a call to us as a church, first of all, to have our roots in how we worship, perhaps especially in, in how we worship what we do on a Sunday, in to, to be aware of how other Christians have done it and to be humble before it. It doesn't mean we have to copy them. It doesn't mean we have to be exactly like them. What it means is we have to listen carefully and judge lovingly and submit with humility to what other people have done in how we live, in how we uh, confess our faith, in how we interpret the commands of God, we have to have roots in the historical church and not be breaking from them. To look at what's gone before and say, with true humility, say, why did they do this? Why did they believe that? Uh, with, to judge with generosity and humility, and genuine submission. So if you look back at the Puritans or the Reformers or the church before that or the early church, what was cultural and specific to the time? What was obedience? What was that seeking out of, of Christ's true church and true Christ-likeness? And uh, we have to apply that to our situation. That's a command in Scripture. John 4 says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. We reject those things. That's what we're doing. So on a personal level, just to finish... I think there's a challenge there too. If our hearts are close to God, we're really seeking God. 
we have this assurance that that same deep submission, as we look back 2,000 years of people who love God, who come to know Christ and his wonderful gospel, who've lived their whole lives trying to seek out the best way to, to follow him and give glory to God. We have this amazing resource, don't we? What wisdom we have access to. Isn't that a wonderful thing? What assurance we have. We, we've got a, this vast multitude of people who followed Christ in situations just like ours and in situations completely different. We've got people who've gone down the wrong road and repented and found the right road and they can tell us, you don't need to go that way, you just go this way. And what grace we see. We see 2,000 years of people who have faced the same trials and temptations as us, stumbled in the same way as you have, had to repent in the same way that you have. And God has been faithful through it all. God would say to us, therefore, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. Let's pray. Um. I know Jeff doesn't really mind being put on the spot, which is why I'm doing this. Um, in Colossians 3, Jeff, it talks about how we should put on the new self. Yeah. So it says, um, a, put on a bunch of things, compassion and stuff, and above all these, put on love. Um, and there's this sense of dressing up almost like a play actor, like a hypocrite <clears throat> Yeah. as Christ. Do you, I just think it'd be really cool to maybe just speak into this is the kind of falsehood that we don't want and this is the kind of acting that we do want. Yeah. Is that okay? It's good. Do I stay here while I do it? Then I won't no, that would be a bit weird. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, no, it's a really good point. It's something I was I thought about putting in, actually. So, um, uh, but I'm trying to make my sermons a little shorter. <laughs> um, but I think it's a, it's a good point because we're talking about having a right judgment of our own heart. And I think one of the things that the devil does is there is a sense in which until we actually begin to act in a Christian way, often um, we don't begin to think in a Christian way. So one really good example, like say this morning, I, you know, I was trying to get ready for church and I wasn't feeling very worshipful. So I put on a worship song and as the worship played and I joined in with it, my heart changed, you know, so I was kind of um, just began with that thing and, and, and God drew me into it. And I think, the devil would come along to say to that and say, see, you're not really a worshipper. You need da, 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 to, you know, to fake it and then you can go along with it. But actually, I think so many things in the Christian life, actually, God calls us in the first instance to um, ch- childlike, even childish obedience. And, and then through that obedience, we grow into adult obedience. So he calls us to, you know, whether it's, it's a moral law, God calls us to say, he calls us to, in the first instance, just do what, the Bible says, <laughs> obey me, and then you'll understand. And as we walk in obedience, we begin to see things from his perspective, and our understanding changes. And what starts out as childlike obedience, I obey God because the Bible says so, gradually turns into adult obedience. I obey God because I understand his will and his mind, and I understand you know, why he says what is good is good, and why he says what is bad is bad. And I, I now not just do it because I'm obedient, I do it because I want to do the things that God wants. That's hence why the New Testament talks about God's will so much. 
and, and same thing in lots of different areas of the Christian life, worship or prayer. You know, the truth is you're not you're almost never going to feel like praying on a regular basis until you begin to pray on a regular basis. Um, and so, so I, I think I would say to that, do those things. That's not hypocrisy, that's discipline. The devil would accuse you of hypocrisy in those things, but don't listen to him. He just wants you to be ill-disciplined. But as you develop those disciplines, examine your heart for hypocrisy. So I find, you know, my prayer life, there are plenty of days when I just find myself, I begin to just go through the motions. And I have to remind myself, this is about a relationship with God, but actually talking to him, <laughs> you know, not just saying words, or reading, reading the Bible, you know, it can just become a habit. And you go, you're going through the motions and you're not actually thinking, this is God's very word to me. And so I think, um, do the things and, and adjust your heart. So or to take the verse we're looking at, God isn't saying, don't praise me with your lips, just praise me with your heart. He's saying, praise me with your lips and let your heart follow where your lips have led. Don't leave your heart behind. Does that answer the question? Okay, good.